0: All right, again, if you have your Bibles, Daniel chapter 9, we're actually going to finish up tonight um, talking about the tribulation. And then um, next week, we're going to transition to talk about the millennium. Um, And you'll remember our chart. We'll we'll kind of rehash that a little bit. But we'll start talking about the millennium next week. We'll talk about that for two, three weeks or so. And then as we wrap up the semester um, here in a few weeks or a month or so, We'll kind of do a big summary, and then after the holidays, we'll dive into Revelation. And um, and, and you'll see when we dive into Revelation, why well, I've tried to hold off a little bit and try to lay this as a groundwork uh, for us. And if you missed a week, you missed a few weeks, or you're like, I had 25 questions after that one week, uh, Dave DeWall over here is putting together um, the audio um, from these, these um Um, weeks, and they will be on the website here in the next couple of weeks, that you can go back. You'll see kind of the title or the blurb about that week, so you can kind of go back and just listen to that. It's just going to be the audio, um, but you can at least go back and listen to those. And uh, so yeah, so Daniel chapter 9, we're going to try to wrap up the tribulation a little bit here tonight. But just to recap from last week, uh, we talked about Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and in your biblical studies, this is a massive, massive moment. Um, and, and just as you get into the Old Testament, as we get into the New Testament, this is a big moment. Um, you can specifically read it Deuteronomy 27 through 30. And it's a, it's a scene where the Israelites are still in the wilderness. Remember, they've been roaming about there for 40 years because of their rebellion, the whole golden calf thing. And they've been there for 40 years. And this is, they're kind of coming to the end. And this is kind of the last big kind of moment before they are going to get to go into the promised land. Um, and so there they are, and they're in the wilderness, and Moses tells them basically, hey, when you get into the, into the promised land, you, you're to do this. And, of course, the Lord's instructing him to tell them this. You, you need to go to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, which are basically right in the heart of Israel, and they're just straight north of Jerusalem. But they're two kind of... Uh, Low mountains, I call them Oklahoma kind of mountains, you know, they're not like the Rockies, kind of, they're not 10 to 15,000 feet kind of mountains, and so, but they were to get there, they were close, there's kind of this valley in between them, and so half the tribes were to stand on Mount Ebal, the other half were to stand on Mount Gerizim, and the Levites were going to be in the center, and they were going to pronounce these blessings and these curses, Um, and so when they were pronouncing the blessings, then those on Mount Gerizim would say, amen, yes, yes, amen. Um, and if they were on Mount Ebal, when they were pronouncing the curses, then these Israelites would would shout, yes, amen, amen. And, um, it basically came down to this. Um, you'll see there on your handout, if the Israelites loved, followed, and obeyed God, in essence, this is what it all boils down to, um, If you love me, you follow me, you obey me, then they would be blessed. Then they would be a blessed people. Um, And again, you can go back and read through those chapters and and you just see that God in essence tells them like things are going to go really well for you. You're always going to be the head, never the tail. Um, I mean, things are just you're you're just going to prosper and and just night. Everything's going to be nice and good if you just love me, follow me and obey me. We know that's really hard to do, right? Um, And it's almost impossible to do, actually, because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, But then you got this other one. We also see that if the Israelites did not love, follow, and obey God, then they would be cursed. They would be cursed. And it's not just that, hey, you know, some bad things might happen to you. It's you're going to face desolation and destruction. Go read those chapters. The language, and most of it, is spent on these curses. Um, warning, warning, warning the Israelites, warning the, uh, them that if you don't love me, you don't follow me, you don't obey me, Thing, I mean, destruction is coming your way. Desolation is coming your way. And so it is a massive, massive warning to this nation of people that they are to represent God in everything. They are to reflect God in everything. They are to revere God, the true and eternal God, not these false gods, but the true and eternal God. But if they turn from him, they don't love him, follow and obey him, then desolation and destruction. Well, so you fast forward to Daniel, Daniel's time, um, specifically Daniel chapter 9, and we looked a couple weeks ago, we really looked at the history um, in a very short and condensed version, but the days of the judges, the days of the kings, and what do we discover? They didn't love him, follow him, or obey him. Why do you even have kings? Because they were in rebellion. They, they wanted for themselves a king. They wanted to be like all the other nations. Look at the days of the judges. It's a broken record of their rebellion. Um, and as the book ends, they all just did what was right in their own eyes. Um, and so you just see this broken record, and then finally what happens, you get to the days of David and then Solomon, and then you have Rehoboam, and, and things aren't looking good. And so God says, okay, let, what about Jeroboam? Um, let's put Jeroboam in, in you know, kingship next. Um, but what does Jeroboam do? Um, he does what they did in the wilderness. He creates these golden calves and puts them in a couple different spots um, and says, these are what delivered you from Egypt. These are what saved you. This is where you find your happiness, your meaning, your purpose. Um, And that spirit and disposition continued on. Uh, And so right after that, that's when you have the whole nation of Israel splits. Ten of the tribes go north, two of the tribes go south. Um, And then we see the days of the kings. No good king was up north. They all did evil and wicked. There was a few good ones down south. But for the most part, they all did what was evil in God's eyes. Um, And so the time of Daniel comes along. Israel's is divided, the north has been exiled already, um, and now even in the days of Daniel, da- Daniel has seen his homeland been taken over. Um, he's now become an exile himself, and he's seen the city of Jerusalem, all of its glory, right, and think about the days of Sodom, when they finished the temple and everything, like destroyed, the city of Jerusalem destroyed, and all these people taken out of their home, right? It'd be like Texas, for example. Sorry if you're from Texas, um, or my dad's from Texas. So I got a little bit of blood from down there. But imagine, though, you're from Oklahoma. This is your homeland for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. And then Tex- <laughs> Texans come in, and they just take over Oklahoma, destroy Oklahoma City, the capital. They burn things down, and then they take you captive down to West Texas or something like that, right? To live all your days of your life uh, outside Midland, Odessa. And sorry, that's where my, my dad grew up in that area. Anyways, um, so this is what it was. And, and they, they took them out and everything like that. Um, so here they are in exile. Everything's been destroyed, everything's broken. They're in a foreign land. And the things that Moses talked about right here, that God warned them centuries before in the wilderness, before we even got. To the nation of Israel, as far as land, geopolitical kind of stuff goes. Um, all the things that Moses talked about had come true in Daniel's day, literally were coming true in his day, and were going to continue to come true. And so he's writing about events that have come to pass or coming to pass, and that which will come to pass. Why? Because of their failure to represent God, reflect God, and revere God. The reason Daniel is in a land not his own, along with all his fellow Jews, is because they failed this right here. They didn't love him, follow him, or obey him. And so at the time of Daniel 9, though, the Israelites are one year away from being allowed by Persia, by Cyrus, to go back to Israel. Back specifically to Israel. Jerusalem. This is where you get the Ezra and Nehemiahs of the world if you go back and read those books. And so they're one year away um, because when Babylon came in and took over Judah and everything like that, not long later, within decades, Persia takes over. Cyrus the king comes in. He kind of is the the new king. They're the new ruling power, and they say, hey, we need a moral campaign here. Let's let some of these people kind of – let's respect their laws. Let's respect their religions and kind of throw them a bone here. And so that's, in essence, what happens. Cyrus lets some of them go back to Jerusalem and go back to Judea. And what do they find? Um, things are not like they once were. Um, I don't know if you ever saw the Back to the Future movies. Do you guys ever see that? Back to the Future 2. They go to the future, and then they come back. Um, and Biff has changed everything, and it's not what it once was. Something's gone awry, and it looks terrible. And that's, in essence, what happens um, as you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, and you find out it's not just the facilities. It's not just the the landscape, but the people have become not what they once were or should have been. And so they try to rebuild it. They try to rebuild the walls and the temple and everything like that. And then they get it done. It's like, all right, what do we think? And then you have that generation that remembers what it once was. And they're like, hey, this isn't like the good old days. You know, this is not like the glory of old. It's a shell of itself. And so they're just kind of left like, okay, what's going on here? But a year before that, a year before that, you have Daniel chapter 9. And Daniel is praying and pleading for the Lord to forgive his people. Um, he, Daniel 9 starts off with this admission and confession He is um, torn inside. He's weeping. It's it's just kind of a sad situation. But why? why? I mean, why is he pleading and praying this? Well, just look at Daniel 9 verse 11. The reason is, is because all Israel has transgressed your law. All Israel, not, not just one of us, not just some of us, but all Israel, the South and the North, has transgressed your law and turned aside what? Refusing to obey your voice and hear this and the curse that think Mount Ebal think Mount Ebal and the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses Daniel's thinking Deuteronomy 27 to 30 here the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses the servant of God have been poured out upon us so the things that Moses was warning against really the Lord through Moses was warning against He's saying these things have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Verse 12, he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us great calamity for under the whole heaven. There has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem Think about what Daniel's seen. Think about what he knows is going on. Think about what he knows from Scripture. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we didn't learn. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. We've not turned from our iniquities and gained insight by your truth. Instead, we just keep living in rebellion. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity. And has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that He has done, and we have not (coughs) obeyed His voice. Again, the kind of language here that Daniel's using is going all the way back here. This had everything to do with obedience, right? And the same thing in Jesus. This is, as we looked at last week, direct connection. When He's giving His whole sermon on the mount, and He's pronouncing blessings and essence curses as well, He's like when He gets to the wise and foolish builder. Right? Wise are you, blessed are you, if you hear these words and what? Do them. You're like a person who builds his house on the rock. But foolish are you or cursed are you if you hear these words and don't obey them. This is the kind of language Daniel's drawing on. It goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. Skip down then to verse 17. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, Just make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, your city of Jerusalem, yes, but also your temple, which is desolate, which is desolate. Verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. No, no. Because we're not righteous, no, not one, but because of your great mercy, we come to you. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So there's sin and rebellion. There's devastation and there is desolation. And Daniel is crying out to God for forgiveness, to hold back his judgment, to look at the desolations on the temple on the city, everything that has been poured out. And he's he's acknowledging, he's admitting and confessing, yes, we failed this, but please, can, because of your mercy, can you change the narrative? Can you change the story? And this is God's reply. And this is where we get the whole seven years of tribulation and so on. This is God's reply through the man Gabriel, Daniel 9, 20 through 27. You can read it, but just look more specifically at verse 24 starting in verse 24 in essence what gabriel tells him is that hey daniel is bad i know that it's going to get worse it's going to get worse in other words it's only just begun verse 24 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city now that's interesting that he's saying your people and your holy, your holy city. But these 70 weeks have been decreed about your people and your holy city. So specifically about physical Israel and physical Jerusalem and the physical temple. So 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. For, for what purpose? What, why is this decree coming? To finish the transgression. To finish it, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in or to introduce or to create, in a way, everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. That's why the 70 weeks are decreed. For those reasons just right there. The purpose is huge, 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 huge. And so as we saw last week, most scholars have figured out that 69 weeks passed from the time of the announcement of the building of the temple of the city, the days of Nehemiah, Ezra. 69 weeks passed to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. One source put it this way. God said that 70 weeks have been determined but with the the death of the messiah we only have 69 weeks accounted for this leaves one seven-year period to be fulfilled to finish the transgression put an end to sin so on and so forth and this final seven-year period is what we call the tribulation the time when god finishes judging physical israel physical jerusalem as gabriel told daniel so as you see there in your notes the 77 or the 70 weeks um, of years as you see that language the sevens are groups of years so 77 would be 490 years and so what scholars are saying is that if you look at the timeline and everything from when it's announced of the rebuilding of the temple and the city of jerusalem to jesus's death it's 483 years leaving seven years And the final, this is your next point, the final seven-year period is what we call this tribulation, or the time when God finishes judging physical Israel. In other words, to finish the transgression. Again, that goes back all the way here to this. So the debate is, though, where all the debate arises is what we think of with this seven-year tribulation on Israel as described by Daniel The debate is, has it already happened? Is it symbolically happening right now, or will it literally happen in the future? So more specifically, is it a seven-year tribulation unique to physical Israel in the days of Daniel? Or the days of Jesus, hundreds of years later? Or is it unique to physical Israel today? Or is it applicable to the whole world, this seven years of tribulation? or is it somehow related to all of that? This is where you get all the debates and everything like that. Um, that's what we need to answer though. Now last week I began to argue that I believe the immediate application and the ultimate purpose of the 70 weeks of Daniel 9 has already been fulfilled. Couple key words in there. the immediate application. And the ultimate purpose of those 70 weeks has already been fulfilled. That doesn't mean there's also not a future application we'll look at in just a minute. But specifically, I'm talking about how it's already been fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus. His life, his birth, his life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension. And the destruction and desolation of the physical temple and physical Jerusalem In 70 A.D. And you say, well, how in the world, how so? Well, again, let's just take Luke's gospel, for example. Luke 19. So if you have your Bibles, you can look over there to Luke 19. There's so much here. So much in the whole book of Luke. But Luke 19, just to set the setting for you, you have Jesus riding on the donkey, coming down the Mount of Olives. And... The Mount of Olives is just like this nice little hill. And if you see, I mean, you can go Google pictures of Jerusalem when you get home and you'll see the Mount of Olives just right there. I mean, it, it's just coming down into Jerusalem, It would have been coming down right, really, to where Herod's temple and all that kind of stuff was. I mean, this is like the, the big moment right here. So Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives on this donkey, as we see in Luke 19, 37 into 40. And everybody around him is shouting and jumping up and down for joy. Literally, Luke says they're they're like joyfully shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We call this what? The triumphal entry, right? We look at this, you know, around Easter time and everything like that. This is kind of the event that kind of kickstarts that last week that Jesus was on earth before his death and, and so on. And so Jesus is on the donkey riding down the Mount of Olives, and there's all these people gathered there. If you look at John's gospel, the word was spreading about Lazarus coming back from the dead, right? Remember, Lazarus was brought back from the dead. So everybody's just gathering to, you know, they want to see what, what's going to happen, you know. And so you need to place yourself in their shoes. They're they full of joy because why? Well, if you're a Jew in that day and you believe this is the Messiah, the anointed one, and he's coming down into physical Jerusalem, and he's heading towards the physical temple, and you know all the history, the days of Daniel, the days of the exile, you know the days of Solomon, you know all that history, and what you've been anticipating since the days of Daniel, and Ezra, and Nehemiah, and so on, what you are thinking at this point is that the Messiah is coming to restore not just the glory of God like the days of old, but a greater glory. To what? to physical Jerusalem, and to the physical temple in order to elevate the nation of Israel, God's people, to supremacy over the cosmos at this point. So you're super excited. Like this is, you know, after they finished in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah about building the temple and the city, and people are like, this isn't like what it once was. We're still waiting for something else down the line. This is it. This is the moment. So they're just jumping up and down for joy. They think this is their, this is it. God's going to deliver them from the hands of Rome. They're going to live happily ever after. God's glory is going to fill the temple again and the city again. And it all is going to be nice and pleasant. What is Jesus' response while this is going on? According to Luke 19, 41 through 44, look at verse 41. Hey Dave, here in a moment, you want to shut that door? <laughs> um Luke 19, verse 41, as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he's riding on the donkey, he's going down the Mount of Olives, this is the triumphal entry, and he sees the city, Jerusalem, he wept. He starts bawling. Well, that's, that's like the word that Luke uses, he's just weeping. We don't think about that when we talk about the triumphal entry, right? We think about palm branches, and we, think, we place ourselves in the, the feet of the crowd, But if you look over at Jesus on the donkey, he's weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Why? Well, Luke tells us exactly what it says. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. And the days will come upon you, city of Jerusalem, even the temple itself, When your enemies will build an embankment against you, and they'll encircle you, and they'll hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of Yahweh himself, God himself, coming to you. You didn't recognize Emmanuel. You denied him. You lived in disbelief. You lived in rebellion. You did what you were doing all the way back here. You didn't love him. You didn't follow him. You didn't obey him. You didn't even receive him. And so what's he saying? Jerusalem, you're going to be destroyed. Temple, you're going to be destroyed. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And you say, "Okay, if that's the only time he said something like that, you might walk away." So that's kind of weird. But Jesus emphasizes it and emphasizes it and emphasizes it all that week leading up to his betrayal, um, his arrest, his death, so on. Um, even if you go back to Luke 13, it's not even the first time he said this. Not even the first time that he's lamented and wept over Jerusalem. You go all the way back to Luke 13, verse 31 through 35, specifically 34 and 35. Jesus says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, you stone those who were sent to you. How often I, this is, remember God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus. This is Jesus born of Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, just a fellow Jew like them, a carpenter's son, who is he to talk like this? He's in essence saying, I, Yahweh in human form. Remember later on he'd say, you don't recognize the time of God's coming to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. So look, Jerusalem, your house is left to you desolate. So then you go back to Luke 19, you have the triumphal entry, you have the weeping, Jesus makes this massive declaration while weeping. And what does he do? From there, Jesus goes to the temple. And all that week leading up to his death, Jesus spends time at the temple. And all throughout Luke's God, he emphasizes it, he emphasizes it. Um, It's all just focused on location here. And we find that in Luke chapter 20, what, in my opinion, is the most revealing, clear declaration against physical Israel, physical Jerusalem, physical temple, it's in Luke 20. It's the parable of the wicked tenants. And in verse 9, it begins. Jesus goes on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. He rented it to some farmers, and he went away for a very long time. So at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him up. They sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed Again earlier on in Luke 13. He says about Jerusalem. This is how you treat the prophets Those I sent to you so that I could gather you under my wings, but you weren't willing So verse 12 then he sent still a third and they wounded him and threw him out Then what then the owner of the vineyard said, well, what shall I do? I will send my son My only begotten son, the only human being born who is of the nature of God, who is Jesus, my son whom I love. Perhaps they'll respect him. Perhaps they will revere him. But when the tenants saw him, when they saw the son, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard. They took him outside Jerusalem and they hung him on a tree. They killed him. So Jesus asked, well, then what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Desolation and destruction. When the people heard this, they said, well, God forbid that would ever happen. Jesus looked directly at them. Jesus is wanting them to grasp this. And then he asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's a reference to Psalm 118. When you get a chance, just go back and read it. Because Jesus is asking them, what do you think that context is talking about? Verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but anyone on whom that stone falls will be crushed. Destruction, desolation. Jesus, there again, quotes from Isaiah 8. 14 and 15 again encourage you to go back and read that Because in that context The Lord says that he will be a holy place And that should put context to John chapter 2 when Jesus says destroy this temple I'll rebuild it in three days John says he was talking about his body Fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 8 where it says he will be a holy place that he will be the temple so, of course, after all this, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So all of that, and we, there's more and more and more, but all of that set up sets up Luke 21, which is like the ultimate proclamation of judgment. This is where this has all been leading. It's an ultimate proclamation of judgment on physical Israel, specifically on physical Jerusalem, on the physical temple which is at the heart of the physical Israel. And it's there because of this. Because they failed to love him, follow him, and obey him. They weren't willing, Jesus said. So at one point, they're leaving the temple, and look at Luke 21, verse 5. And some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God, so they stand at stone buildings with this and they reject god in human form it's their unbelief they don't see it this is why jesus is saying it's kept from their eyes so even his disciples were like they're remarking wow well, yeah, look at the temple look at these stones and how beautiful it is and all these gifts that have been dedicated to god but jesus said as for what you see here the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. By the way, if you go see Jerusalem today, you can still see some of those stones laying down on the ground. Teacher, they asked later on, verse 7. As we see in Matthew's gospel, they're now on the Mount of Olives when they kind of kick this conversation back up again. Again, on the Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem, specifically overlooking the temple. When will these things happen? What will be the sign that they're about to take place? And at the heart of Jesus' response, the climax of his reply is this. Look down, Luke uh, Luke 21, verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Again, what did God promise? You don't love me, you don't follow me, you don't obey me. You can expect desolation and destruction. What did Gabriel promise Daniel? That these 70 weeks are to be decreed to finish the transgression. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Verse 21. Then, when that happens, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Get out. Let those in the city, let those in Jerusalem get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. When it fell, it was over time. He had all these people coming into Jerusalem. Verse 22. Why, why are you saying this, Jesus? For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. goes back to Daniel 9, what Gabriel had to say, which goes all the way back to this. Remember the purpose of the seven years of tribulation in Daniel 9, to finish the transgression. So he says, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and they'll be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. As we'll look later on, I believe it's an allusion to the end of all things. But then he says down in verse 32, truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all of these things have happened. Within 40 years of Jesus saying those words, Jerusalem was destroyed. And then Luke finishes that in Luke 21, verse 37, he says, each day Jesus was teaching where at the temple. Each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives, and all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Luke wants you to begin to hear this, what Jesus was having to say about Jerusalem and the temple. So this is one of the big teaching moments within the climax of Luke's gospel. And these are some of the last teachings recorded before his arrest and so on in Luke's gospel. And he's talking about the destruction and the desolation of physical Jerusalem and the physical temple. And what we discover by just looking at history is that God uses the great enemy, Rome, the one who, unbeknownst to them, crucified the anointed one, God himself. He uses them to deliver the destruction and desolation that he promised way back in the wilderness. Rome, who had leaders professing and claiming and celebrating themselves as gods, as deity in human form. We looked last week at the example of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was a self-professing great high priest over all religions and false gods. Um, he was the great high priest, but even here, your, break, or your uh, handout here, Caesar Augustus declared himself the son of gods. He was God in human form. Jesus is born right in the center middle of Caesar Augustus' reign as the first official emperor of Rome. And this enemy desolated and destroyed Jerusalem and her temple in a seven-year period of tribulation. Ironically, begun by zealots. Zealots who had zeal for physical Israel, physical Jerusalem, physical temple, and had no zeal for Jesus. 63 AD, the temple, Herod's temple, is officially announced complete. Three years later, you have the Jewish revolt in 66 AD. So these zealots, they drive out the enemy, Rome. They take over. We've talked about this. They establish their little mini-government for a time, but there's tribulation beginning at this point. People in the city are divided. There's a lot of unfair and injustices happening and so on. And then at the three-and-a-half-year mark, mid this seven-year war, mid-tribulation, you get 70 AD, Rome comes, sets up their armies, they surround Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem, exactly as Jesus said, exactly verbatim. As Jesus said, they surround Jerusalem and in mockery. They do this at Passover. So they're allowing all these people coming into the country to go into Jerusalem. Hey, yeah, go celebrate your festival. That sounds wonderful. And so all these people are traveling in there. People are staying inside the city. And then they shut them in on every side. They starve them. And then after getting bored, I guess, they decide to burn the city down. They burn the temple down. They destroy it. And you can still see the destruction today. Like I said, you can still see the stones laying there today. And that western wall, the wailing wall people gather at, is the only remaining kind of wall left of Herod's temple. Destroyed something like 2,000 years ago. But the war did not end there. It officially ended in 73 AD at the siege of Masada and Rome did, in essence, the same thing. They were all dead. When they got there, it was a tragedy. It was, it was terrible. But it officially ended this seven years of war between Rome, the great enemy, and physical Jerusalem, physical temple, physical Israel. And ever since then, it's never been the same. Ever since then, all you've seen is desolation and destruction. And now a mockery of it. So desolation officially came putting an end to the way things were. You could honestly say the decrees were fulfilled. The final fulfillment of that transgression. F- officially fulfilling all that God said he would do back in the wilderness. And affirmed in and through Daniel 9 that he would bring an end to the transgression. And then ultimately announced in and through the person Jesus who is God himself. And you say, well, why would he do that? why would god do that why would he announce this? why would he bring this on all of that it has everything to do with jesus 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 this is where you get to your new testament it all comes down to jesus who he is why he came what he accomplished in and through his death burial and resurrection and the giving of the holy spirit pentecost is huge the holy spirit the holy spirit the holy spirit remember we looked at this several several weeks ago right but you had the fullness of God come and fill the tabernacle, right? Then you had the fullness of God come and fill the temple in Solomon's day, right? And you said when his presence would come, it would come like fire, like light, right? And then you finally see this at the conception of, right, in Mary's womb you see that. But then when you get to Pentecost, what do you see? You see this fire light come, the presence of God through the Holy Spirit come, and not just fill a place, but a people. For the first time ever in the creation of the cosmos and everything, since the very beginning, you now see the presence of God not just fill a place, but a people as the fire splits over them. And you have what? The birth of the church. And all of this God foretold. All of this is pointing to this. Even when he arrived on the scene in the person of Jesus, he continued to tell us that he was about creating something new. He said, listen, I'm, I'm not coming to put new wine in old wineskins. I'm not coming to put like new cloth in old garments. This is something radically, radically new. And it's something that God has in store for his people, for his true Israel, for those who are of the faith of Abraham, the true descendants of Abraham, the true Jerusalem, the true people who are his church, his body, his temple, his bride. Mm-hmm. You say, where do you get that? The whole New Testament. Just, just for example, look at Galatians. We'll read these really quickly. Just for example, listen to Paul's language here in Galatians. Galatians chapter three, verse six. He says, "So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness." This is before there's an Isaac and a Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. This is Abraham before the law was given, and so on and so forth. So Abraham believes God. It's credited to him as righteousness. Paul says, understand then that those who have faith, specifically those who have faith in Jesus are children of Abraham. You believe in Jesus? You're a child of Abraham. How do you know that? Verse 8, well, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and he announced the gospel the good news in advance to abraham that all nations would be blessed through abraham so those who rely on faith and not works are blessed along with abraham the man of faith for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse language paul is trying to get you to think about here at mount Ebal, as it is written Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Guess where that is quoted from? Deuteronomy 27. Paul, it all goes back, so much goes back to this. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ is who is Jesus, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, cursed as everyone is everyone who's hung on a pole or a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And even in Luke chapter 4, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus arrives on the scene. He's in Nazareth, right? He's at the synagogue one day. You'll remember the scene. He gets up and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. It says, On this day, you know, the Spirit is upon me to announce, you know, freedom to the captives and so on and so forth. After that, he sits down and says, Today in your presence, this has been fulfilled. Of course, they're kind of like, hey, what are you talking about? You know, all these kind of things. And Jesus like, you know, a prophet's without honor in his hometown. And then Jesus brings up Elijah and Elisha. And how when they were sent, they went to Gentiles during their time of oppression or need or suffering. Jesus was announcing, I've come for all people. I've come for all the nations. And what was their response to that? They literally took him to the edge of a cliff and wanted to kill him. Right then and there in Nazareth. you remember this scene? Go look. If, you don't, if you forgot about it, go back and read it Luke chapter 4. They wanted to kill him right there. Of course, he walks away, and it's really, really cool. But anyways, so you have this going on. So this is what Paul is saying, that he has come for all people. He's come to make a new way. Verse 26, if you skip down. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. No matter where you're born, no matter what your nationality, ethnicity, If you have placed faith in Jesus, in him, you are all children of God, not through your own righteousness or what you've done, but through faith. For all of you are baptized into Christ. You have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile in Christ. There's neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Jesus or Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You are of his lineage. You belong to him. Paul would make this argument also in Romans 2 and Romans 9, that what it means to be true Israel is deeper than just ethnicity. It's deeper than of the flesh. It's something deeper within. So again, later, using Hagar and Sarah as figurative examples, Paul argues this in Galatians 4, verse 21. He says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively, he says. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and it bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to what? The present city of Jerusalem. This was right before the destruction, about 15, 20 years before. It corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. Why? Because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother for it is written be glad barren women you who never bore a child shout for joy and cry aloud you who were never in labor because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her than of her who has a husband now you brothers and sisters like Isaac you are children of promise at that time the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit You're born by the power of the Spirit. John says this in John chapter 1. Those who did receive him, those who believed in him, you're born not of the flesh but of the Spirit. So because of that, you are like Isaac. You are children of the promise. You are the seed of Abraham. So he says it's the same now. But what does Scripture say? He says, get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. And then he goes on to say, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to the physical temple. You want to live according to the old covenant? You want to put yourself under the law again? That's what Paul is saying. He had to rebuke Peter for this. Earlier on in Galatians, we read about it. If you want to go back to that old covenant and to the old temple and the sacrifices every day, now upholding the law of Mount Sinai, he says, you will what? You'll be cursed because you can't live up to it. But man, God has made a way in and through Jesus. And then just really quick, I'll finish with this. Ephesians 2, Paul says this elsewhere. Man, he argues this so much. Ephesians 2, though, he says, verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a circumcision, he says, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But we know God has come, and through Jesus. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Remember he instituted that new covenant, Right. For he himself, Paul says, is our peace. Remember what Jesus was weeping over if they just knew what would give them peace. It was Jesus himself. But they were unwilling. Jesus himself is our peace who has made the two groups, the Jew and the Gentile one. And he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. This is direct language and imagery to the physical temple. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose in all of this was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body, in Jesus, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. So he came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near for through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So he says, Consequently, because of this, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You are fellow citizens with God's people. You're members of his household. Hear this. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We'll see that language again in Revelation at the end. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. With Christ Jesus himself as the what chief cornerstone. In him, hear this, in Jesus, the whole building, he's talking about you now, you're not a building, you're a people, right? But he's using imagery here. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become, anybody know, a holy temple in the Lord. And so in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You're the people of God. You are the descendants of Abraham because of your faith in Jesus. And in Christ, Paul, the Bible is declaring in Jesus there is no distinction. You're all one in Christ. There's something radically new that came about when God himself came to this earth. And this was all foretold. Even if you go back to Deuteronomy 30, we looked at this last week. Deuteronomy 31 through 10, you can read it later. We discovered the circumcised heart. It was always gonna be about faith. So you see the Rahabs of the world, the roots of the world. You place faith in him, you will belong to him. And man, there's so much there right now. There's so much. But somebody asked, okay, if you had the immediate application, has already been fulfilled. And God truly has finished the transgression and he has ushered in atonement and everlasting righteousness and through his son and so on and so forth. Then is there this future application? And I would argue there is a future application of that seven years of tribulation. But that great tribulation would not be reserved just for physical Israel. That has been fulfilled. It's done. It would be reserved for all humanity. For those outside of Jesus, outside of the ark of Christ, outside of the house with the blood of Jesus on them. For their disobedience. For following the same course. Of not believing, but disbelieving. Of not surrendering to his lordship, but crucifying him as an imposter. Just like the days of Noah, we call this the final judgment, which we'll look later at. But you ask, well, what's going on right now in, in the Middle East, and everything like that, then how does all that correspond to all this? You know what it reminded me of, I'll, we'll finish on this, is Joshua chapter 5. And Joshua and the Israelites are on the verge of going into Jericho. You remember this? And they're standing before the walls and everything like that. And the, the irony about that is in Joshua chapter 5, they just got done circumcising that generation that's just come down of the wilderness. And circumcision is a big thing. And again, we already go back to Deut- Deuteronomy 30. It's really about the circumcision of the heart. That's what God really, really cares about. And Joshua asks this question, and you see it there your last little part of the handout. Lord, whose side are you on? And remember what I this is interesting, what Gabriel told Daniel, your people in your city. God cares about the free woman, the true Jerusalem that is reserved in heaven for you, right? Paul uses this language elsewhere. Also, the author of Hebrews does as well. But but what is God's response to Joshua's question? No. In the original text, that's that's the it is stop. You're asking the wrong question. Joshua, don't you understand the wilderness? Don't you understand what I care? Don't you understand the promise given to Abraham that he will be a blessing to all nations? What I care, care most about is the heart. It's what it's always been about. Those who would love him, follow him, and obey him. That's the side God is on. Because those are his people. And those are the ones that he has in store, a great inheritance when it's all said and done, that we'll look at in the book of Revelation, that is glorious and beyond imagination. So the tragedy of what you're seeing right now is so many people, Muslims, so many of those of Judaism, who have denied the true and eternal God, denied Jesus. And so they are literally living in rebellion. And so what I think God would have us respond with is pray for their salvation. Not physically, but spiritually. Pray, pray, pray. Because there's so many who, not only do they not know Jesus, but they've rejected Jesus. And that, when they do that, they stand in condemnation, as Jesus says in John chapter 3. Pray for their salvation. Pray for their salvation. Hey, I'll be up here, I'm going to close this in prayer. If you got questions, come find me. I'll be right up here afterwards. Father, we just come to you right now. We thank you for today. We thank you for tonight. Lord, help us to see what you've done in the past, what you're doing here in the present, and what you will do in the future for all those who love you, follow you, and obey you, who have placed faith in Christ Jesus. Help us to surrender to your Lordship in all things and in every way. And I pray for all those around the world that they would recognize that you have sent Jesus, Emmanuel God with us, to make a way for us to draw near to you. May people place faith in Jesus, receive the Holy Spirit, and they too become a part of the community of your people. All for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you all. You're dismissed.